You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Acts chapter 8 is a strange chapter, and I often come across these passages and I wonder why in the world did God put that in the Bible? It's one of those that's so confusing that it often gets leapfrogged over because it's hard to make sense of. And yet it must have been, I can imagine, Dr. Luke, who wrote down Acts, ministering to the Apostle Paul. And while he's ministering to him there and his, wherever it's happening, and, and Luke says to Paul, you know, I'm writing down all of these things that happened and I'm thinking about including this story. And Paul's saying, oh, you, you must include that story. I doubt that's how it happened, but I like to think of it that way. And so for one reason or another, God has seen fit to put Acts chapter 8. And if there's anything that we can get out of it, which is quite a bit, it is we can find out what happens when revival breaks out. Now, revival is an extraordinary pouring out of God's Spirit on the church. It's primarily aimed at the church. Now, there are collateral benefits for those outside of the church, like the bringing of the gospel, like evangelism, but primarily, revival happens within the life of the church. Revival is not an isolated event that happens outside of town, underneath of a tent. It's God doing an extraordinary work by His Holy Spirit in which extraordinary things happen. And Acts chapter 8 is full of them. Acts 8 shows us what we can expect when revival breaks out. The first thing that we can see is spiritual transformation takes place. We see in verse 5 that Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. There's a passion for evangelism that the word of God would go to the very ends of the earth. And Samaria is a strange place for this to happen. Because the Samaritans are not quite Jewish and they're not quite Gentiles. They have their own version of the first five books of the Bible that they follow. Uh, They certainly have a heritage like that of the Jews. Uh, But the Jews in Jerusalem uh, saw them as half-castes. As people who believed in a syncretistic, a mixed religion that was unfaithful to the God of the Bible. They didn't even want to associate with them to the point that if you were traveling from, say, Nazareth down to Jerusalem or vice versa, the shortest route would be through Samaria, but instead they would take the coastal highway or the valley road that runs parallel to the River Jordan so as to not run into any Samaritans. And yet we can expect this to happen. Jesus' final words to the disciples before he's taken up into heaven, give us the table of contents for the book of Acts. You are to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. And so here is the Pentecost moment for the church in Samaria. And it begins by Philip going and evangelizing those people. And as a result, we see them hearing what Philip proclaimed and believing it. And then being baptized. And them, in verse 14, receiving the word of the Lord. So there's evangelism, there's conversion. But there's also something else that when the Holy Spirit comes into your life as a Christian in a normative sense, because this is not a normative story, 
But it gives you a desire for the word. He gives you a desire for the word of God. We see in verse 6 that the crowds paid one accord, with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And in verse 14, we read that they received the word of God. That when you become a Christian, all of a sudden, you start to pay very close attention to what God says. Before that, the Bible just collects dust on a cupboard in your home. It remains by your bedside. But when God crashes into your life, the eyes of your hearts are open and you begin to want to know, what does God have to say to me? How does he speak into my situation? I want to hear his voice. And so you begin to pay close attention to God's word. And then finally, on top of all of this, the great icing on the cake, verse 8, so there was much joy in that city. The joy of God is instilled in your heart and you're overwhelmed with it. You see miraculous signs, but moreover, you're overwhelmed to know that the God of the universe cared so much about you that he sent his son to die in your stead and was raised from the dead for you. And that's a joy that can never be shaken and never be taken away. So we see all of these wonderful things that we normally would identify with revival here in the Samaritan church. But there's also a grim side to revival. Because when God intervenes in the life of a church, we always see persecution. It's a guarantee. And we see persecution from within the church and from without. When revival happens... In a church, the nuts show up. They just do. They come out of the woodwork. And it may be that they're simply attracted to what God is doing, especially if the revival is accompanied by miraculous signs. Uh, They might be there for the show. And they often will bring with themselves, and this is really what makes them a bit nutty, are strange and erroneous ideas concerning who Jesus Christ is and what he's done. And in Samaria, it's no different, because here is Simon the magician. And Simon shows up for all the wrong reasons. Now, it ought to make us tremble when we hear that the response to Simon is that your heart is not right before God, because those of us who are redeemed ask the same question. My heart's not right before God. That's why I need a Savior. And yet, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you're putting your trust in Him, your heart, because of Jesus' imputed righteousness to your life and that you've been clothed with Christ, actually means that your heart is right before God. Because when God the Father looks upon you, who does He actually look upon? He sees His Son, Jesus. And yet, looking at Simon, it's a different story. Because his heart is not right before God. Verse 13 tells us why he was baptized. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, the Bible tells us that Simon believed. But what did he believe? He believed that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. But the Bible also says the devil believes that. 
And the reason why he was baptized, Luke tells us, is because of the signs and wonders. It was because of the miracle. He was attached to the sign rather than the person that it was pointing to. He was not putting his faith and trust and relying on the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, he had a magical view of Christianity. He was only into Christianity as much as it gave to him. And that's understandable because Luke tells us that everybody paid attention to Simon. And then Philip came along and it says what? They started to pay attention to what was being said by Philip. And Simon must have thought, well, if you can't beat them, join them. I'm going to sign up to this. And he was held in high esteem. I mean, I wouldn't go so far as to say that he was a humble man saying that he himself was somebody great. I don't know if you know this, but I'm a pretty big deal. Now, there's a strange thing that happens here. Because normally in the New Testament, well, really, every other time in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit comes into the life of the believer when they put their trust in Christ. That's when it happens. But it didn't happen here. Why? Well, because of Acts 1.8. This is the Samaria Pentecost moment where the church of Jerusalem is coming to these half-caste Samaritans and saying, the Lord is with you. You're my brother. You're my sister. And so the apostles laid hands on them. They were filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And Simon says... I want that. And he begins to empty his pockets and says, whatever I have, I'm going to give it to you because this is my investment for a long-term future. If I can have that kind of power, then I can really be great. Not just in the eyes of the people, but objectively speaking. And Simon here demonstrates that you can be baptized with water and not with the Holy Spirit of God. That's what John the Baptist tells us in our gospel reading. I baptize you with water, like I baptized these children this morning. But children, look to him who can baptize you with fire. The Lord Jesus Christ. That is the baptism that we're talking about here in Acts. And the apostles' response to that, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Now, this is not good PR. What would you do? in this situation, and I, I know that you've been in this situation where someone comes up to you and tells you the most far-fetched, crazy thing that is not just contrary to the gospel, but undermines who Jesus Christ is. And normally what my heart says to me is, don't drop the hammer, Andrew. Just kind of put your arm around them and bring them alongside and, and usher them in and, and say, well, we'll try to work this out. But wh why are the apostles so strong on this? Especially when this church is just getting off the ground. And this is not exactly the way to get people to come in. I mean, all of a sudden you're visiting one Sunday and you walk in and all you hear is, uh, is this. You're in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. Next. 
Well, the apostles are strong on this because they understand the insidious nature of false teaching and they see it in Simon. And if they didn't say anything, in all likelihood, who would be the lead pastor in this congregation? Simon the magician. He had all the gifts, didn't he? He had the respect, the authority, he had the competency, and yet he didn't have the conviction or the character to serve as that pastor. You see, the threat from within the life of the church is actually greater than the threat from without. Because Satan only attacks in a church where God is working. If it's a dead church where no one is coming to faith and people aren't doing good works so that others may praise our Father who is in heaven, well, Satan doesn't have to do anything because his work is already done. But a church that is proclaiming the gospel and living it out and seeing people come to faith and glory is being given to our Heavenly Father, that's where Satan goes for the jugular. That's where persecution comes from within. That's where the Simon the magicians come up from the ranks. And yet, we're a little bit sheepish about it. Now, I'm not saying that you should say, if somebody says, well, I've been doing thus and such, you should say, that you would say, I see, friend, that you're in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity, in the aisle at the Piggly Wiggly. But you know, it's remarkable to me. Do you remember when everybody used to be able to smoke cigarettes anywhere they wanted to? It's amazing to me. One of the first things that a hostess would, would ask my family when we were uh, going to dinner as a child is smoking or non-smoking. And then I can remember riding in an airplane and you had a smoking section and a non-smoking section as if it made any difference. And yet we didn't think anything about it. Now, now, I mean, I read the other day in the paper, Gulf Shores is going to outlaw, if it hasn't already, outlaw smoking on the beach. And if you and I smell a cigarette within 50 yards, we're calling the police. (laughs) We're disgusted. We turn on them with scorn and be like, ugh, you're ruining my life experience with your smoking. What happened in 30 years? where we went from smoking, non-smoking. It always worries me, though, when you get on an airplane and you still see ashtrays, they're just welded shut, you wonder, how old is this plane? (laughs) What would happen is we learned about secondhand smoke. Not only is smoking bad for the person that's doing it, we, we knew that, but secondhand smoke has the ability to harm, even kill, those who are exposed to it. And that's exactly how false teaching affects the life of God's church. It's like secondhand smoke. And where we'll absolutely fall down as hard as we possibly can on the smoker, we take that more seriously than we do the false teaching of God's Word. And yet I'm here to tell you that if anything ever false comes out of this pulpit, and I'm not talking about 
dis- disagreements or, or uh, an opinion which, of which the Bible is vague about, about. I'm talking about anybody that would undermine the lordship of Jesus Christ. I would hope that one of the clergy would stand up, even if it's me, and say, Andrew, you're wrong. And not let it go. Because too much is at stake. And the, the apostles were strong on this because the spiritual lives of the Samaritans was on the line. And so in the midst of revival, there's great persecution from within the life of the church, but there's also great persecution from the outside. It says in verse 4 that they were scattered and went about preaching the word of God. Why were they scattered? Because Stephen had just been killed, the first Christian martyr. And we see that Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, and he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. When the persecution comes out, the church is always scattered. But when we're scattered, do we keep at it? Do we take the gospel wherever we go? Or do we simply put our heads down and bury our faith? If we're under persecution, it's because God is doing a great work in and through us. I think of a place like China. When the missionaries were expelled in 1949 through 1952 by the communist government, many in the church thought it's over. The gospel will never get to China. And then there were maybe 100,000 or so believers in China. Today, after the expulsion of the Western missionaries, there are over 100 million believers in China. And by 2030, there's expected to be 160 million believers in China if the trajectory continues. Defeat in our own human eyes, whether that be a communist regime trying to shut the gospel down or an angry mob killing Stephen, can never ever snuff out the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we would be but faithful and take his word with us when even we are scattered. Revival is an extraordinary thing. But what Acts 8 says to us this morning speaks to what may seem to be our ordinary and mundane lives as well. This morning, have you received the word of God? Have you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you been baptized not just with water, but does his Holy Spirit dwell within you through faith? Are you paying close attention to God's word? Is there joy in your heart? And are, putting, are you putting your everything in the Lord Jesus Christ and looking to him? Well, if we're praying for revival, it certainly cuts both ways. But friends, there's no greater joy in this world than a people given over wholly to the Lord Jesus Christ and to see many sons and daughters come to faith in him. That those of us who are on our way to heaven, as the epistle to the Hebrews says, might take many along with us to the glory of his name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.